0: My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio.
1: Still supports the convoy needs to understand that, you know, we can have debates on vaccination. This was not about vaccination. People felt unsafe in their own neighborhoods. People were harassed. People were scared. That's shameful accepting hateful symbols like the Confederate flag and the Nazi flag and other white supremacist symbols to have been not only present but displayed prominently as part of their manifestations.
0: That's the voice of Alex Silas. He and Angela McEwen. today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Alex Silas has been active in community groups working for things like a higher minimum wage and tenant rights and also in his union, the Public Service Alliance of Canada, or PSAC, where he is currently a regional vice president. Angela McEwan has been involved in the peace and climate movements, and she's an economist with the Canadian Union of Public Employees, or CUPE. Both of them live in Ottawa. That means that when the convoy protest rolled into town at the end of January, they, their friends, and their co-workers were among the people who had to face the convoy's harmful impacts. The ostensible basis for the convoy protest was opposition to vaccine mandates and other public health measures. And certainly, while vaccine acceptance in Canada is very high, and almost 90% of people in this country have had at least one shot of vaccine, the organizers still managed to tap into some real dissatisfaction with government handling of the pandemic. Though today's interview participants are harshly critical of the convoy, they have their own criticisms of government action, pointing towards vastly inadequate government supports for people detrimentally impacted by the pandemic, as well as lack of sensitivity and equity in the implementation of public health measures. However, even a cursory look makes it very clear that the convoy protest was a very different thing than its organizers' PR claimed. It was not, for instance, a protest of working-class truckers. Most participants were not truckers. Those who were truckers were largely not working class, but rather were well-off owner-operators. And their demands had little to do with the very genuine issues that truckers in this country face. Most of the convoy's core organizers were well-known far-right and white nationalist figures, and they used a quite broad and non-specific appeal to people's dissatisfaction to draw people into their orbit, and to grow the networks and build the momentum connected with their very specific, very reactionary, very harmful form of politics. The impacts of the convoy on Ottawa residents were profound. The incessant noise, the presence of far-right and racist symbols among convoy participants, and the active harassment of racialized people, queer and trans people, and women, meant, according to McEwan, quote, we really felt like we were just being held hostage in our houses, end quote the city's grassroots left was caught off-guard. As other activists have noted elsewhere, this is not the first time a similar tactic has been employed by Canada's far-right. In the past, it fizzled without amounting to much, and they expected this to be much the same. As well, while there is plenty of great grassroots stuff happening in Ottawa, the kind of organized presence necessary to adequately confront the convoy or prevent the occupation just didn't exist. During the convoy's first couple of weeks, local activist networks were largely engaged in mutual aid and the kind of support work that doesn't make the news. But people were definitely talking, including McEwen and Silas and many, many others, through phone calls, informal Zoom meetups, emails, social media posts. All of that gradually cohered into a couple of larger and more formal meetings. There were some initial plans for a protest that was postponed over concerns about capacity to ensure people's safety, But then, a community march was organized on February 12th. In many ways, that march was only a first step, but it was an important one, in that after two long weeks of occupation by the convoy, it gave public, grassroots voice to a vision of care, health, thriving, and the common good, in contrast to the underlying hateful agenda of the convoy's organizers. As the convoy subsided and since, there's been an upsurge in interest in grassroots political work in Ottawa. That's taken many forms, but one was the decision by the organizers of that initial march to form Community Solidarity Ottawa, a coalition of community groups, unions, and residents digging into the long-term work of strengthening communities, including defending them from the far right, and insisting on better responses to the pandemic. I speak with McEwan and Silas about the convoy protest, about grassroots responses in opposition to it, and about community solidarity, Ottawa.
2: My name is Angela McEwen. I'm a resident of Centre here in Ottawa, Ontario. I've lived here for about 10 years now. And I'm an economist for the Canadian Union of Public Employees.
1: My name is Alex Silas. I'm the Regional Vice President for the Public Service Alliance of Canada here in the National Capital Region. I've uh, been in the National Capital Region for a dozen or so years, uh, originally from here out New Brunswick, and I'm an organizer with Community Solidarity Ottawa. Community Solidarity Ottawa is a grassroots coalition of local labor unions, as well as community organizations and residents here in Ottawa who are organizing to support our communities, to keep our communities safe, and to propose real solutions to the inequities that have been exposed by the pandemic and the inequities that have existed before the pandemic to strengthen our communities, to build stronger public service supports for people and to fight for advances for workers like paid sick days for all and like a livable minimum wage.
2: There were a whole bunch of activists who, during the convoy occupation, we just had this growing sense of, first of all, having been abandoned by any of the institutions that are supposed to protect us, both in terms of public health and public safety and feeling like we wanted to be able to do something about these range of issues that we see as connected. So the different ways that we take care of each other in our community, from strong labor standards to you know making sure that we wear masks in the middle of a pandemic, to other government responses and failures of government responses, whether that was a lack of help for people with disabilities or a lack of investment in long-term care that led to so many deaths. So it was just kind of a piling up of helplessness, and then we came together to see how we could overcome that helplessness and what we could do to make our community stronger.
0: Before we get to talking about The Convoy and about Community Solidarity Ottawa, give listeners a bit of a better sense of who you are as an individual. Maybe talk about some of the other kinds of grassroots political work that you've been involved in.
1: My first real sense of community here in Ottawa came from, and this was years ago, but I used to be involved in the music scene here in Ottawa. As I grew as a person, that sort of engagement turned into activism. And I got involved in my union, PSAC. I had already been involved in my local as a shop steward, but I got involved in a broader sense in the union by joining the PSAC-NCR Young Workers Committee. Also got involved in community organizing with groups like Fight for 15 and Fairness and ACORN Ottawa. And my labor activism and community activism just grew step by step from there.
2: I started becoming more active as a student in Halifax. I was studying international development at St. Mary's University. And it's a bit more of a socialist perspective on that field. So it was a great introduction to a lot of these ideas about popular education and building community power. I ran into a lot of people that were doing fantastic work in terms of local grassroots activism. And so I shifted my perspective I became involved with the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace in Halifax. The two areas of activism that I had initially in Halifax were peace and climate and I became involved with other organizations. Turns out I'm really good at math, and that's not always a skill set that leftist organizations have. So I would run some numbers for people and make graphs just to support whatever arguments they were trying to make. And that led me more into the direction of the labor movement and stuff like Fight for 15. And I ended up in the labor movement doing work on higher minimum wages, better labor policy, broader supports like housing, like investment in healthcare, public health, that kind of thing. That's the kind of work I've been doing more since I've been in Ottawa, and I had really missed the grassroots connection that you get. So when a friend of mine said, oh, there's this meeting of labor activists, do you want to come? I just jumped at the chance to get back to doing that kind of work that I really missed from Halifax.
0: So speaking as residents of Ottawa, What was the convoy occupation that took over your city's downtown back in February like? What was your experience of it like? And what did you hear from people you're in community with who are racialized, queer, trans, otherwise marginalized, about their experiences of it?
1: I want to preface by saying I am a straight, cisgendered, white male. So I certainly can't pretend to speak for the experience of a Black, Indigenous, or racialized person or of a person from the 2SLGBTQ plus community. And I also had a lot of privilege during the convoy occupation of living further outside of the downtown core and really not experiencing it firsthand. I did speak to a lot of members who work frontline in the downtown core, as well as members that we have on strike who had to adjust their picketing activities because of harassment by the convoy. And the experience of working frontline certainly is something that was felt by PSAC members, as well as many other workers through the occupation. Healthcare workers, workers at the shelters downtown, retail workers and restaurant workers throughout Centertown who faced harassment and who lost wages because of the convoy. And in speaking to colleagues and friends and comrades from the BIPOC community, folks that I heard from were certainly feeling that there was a real unsafe atmosphere for them because of the convoy. I heard from a lot of women who felt that way too members of the 2SLGBT plus community as well, who experienced harassment, who were targeted by convoy participants who were followed in the street and harassed. I think anyone who still supports the convoy needs to understand that, you know, we can have debates on vaccination. This was not about vaccination. People felt unsafe in their own neighborhoods. People were harassed, people were scared. That's shameful, accepting hateful symbols like the Confederate flag and the Nazi flag and other white supremacist symbols to have been not only present, but displayed prominently as part of their manifestations. A lot of folks who lived in Centertown in the downtown area experienced the convoy and the harassment firsthand, had to deal with the deafening, nonstop honking, and not just honking, but loud truck air horns nonstop. A lot of the ways in how the media covered it and how the convoy effectively covered themselves just by you know controlling their social media narrative to a lot of people outside of ottawa i think there's this impression that this was a trucker protest these were not all truckers 90 percent of truckers are vaccinated and have been continuing to deliver goods to canadians coast to coast to coast they weren't in downtown ottawa harassing residents and also, look, my uncle's a trucker out east. He was also just so ashamed that they were being described as truckers because that ideology doesn't represent him. And also, show me a blue-collar trucker who can just afford to take a month off of work to go harass people in downtown Ottawa. A lot of these folks were owner-operators, so they were bosses, essentially. And I think a lot of folks, you know, especially the folks who were just coming in on the weekends, were radicalized into something that they didn't quite understand. In a lot of cases, they truly did not understand the atmosphere of harassment that they were contributing to. But I think that was the situation for people on the ground, and in particular, BIPOC folks, migrants, members of the 2SLGBTQ plus community, and women as well, felt targeted and harassed by the convoy.
2: I live closer, and so we really felt like we were just being held hostage in our houses. You know, you'd have to wear earplugs to have any sense of sanity. It really is psychological warfare to have the air horns going. And they said, oh, well, you know, we'd turn them off for a little bit, but not knowing when they were going on or off, like that doesn't make it any less (laughs) torture. And then it also was loud enough that it would damage people's hearing to be exposed to it at a fraction of the time that they were doing it. And there was a celebratory sense to some of the actions, which on the surface, if you're just seeing that celebratory, you're like, oh, look, they're just dancing and having fun. But for us, it felt like they were celebrating the fact that they were holding us hostage. They were gleeful about the punishment they were inflicting on us. It was a group of people trying to take back their power. And I felt that in other contexts, it feels good to be with a group of like-minded people. It feels good to be in community and in solidarity with people. The problem was, is that they were in solidarity with, you know, making us feel unsafe. Not everybody realized that that was the impact of what they were doing, but some of them definitely did the people participating in the occupation. They also didn't believe when I was talking with people, they didn't believe the stories we were telling them about how we were hurt. They're like, no, no, you're just making that up. Or that was somebody trying to make us look bad or, oh, well that Nazi flag, that was an exception. We're not here for that. We're just here for the vaccine mandates. And they didn't really see how it didn't matter that they personally wouldn't fly a Nazi flag. If you're standing next to someone who's flying a Nazi flag, that signals to us, the community, that you're okay with that. I'm also originally from rural Saskatchewan, so I've had lots of conversations with friends and family there who really have good questions about the way public health was administered, the way masking was talked about, the way vaccinations were talked about. We have racialized members who are on the front lines who also didn't feel that public health was there for them. And so here they saw somebody that was maybe standing up for something that would help them in the convoy. And so there's a lot of stuff to unpack, a lot of things that we have to talk about, because I think people really felt like they were being bullied into going along with something and that they didn't have access to any help if they didn't understand or didn't agree. And so I think especially in terms of racialized communities that were hardest hit by the pandemic who have very good reasons maybe not to trust their doctors and their healthcare system, that we as a community, as a government response, didn't do a great job in having that conversation around vaccination and why it was safe. So I do think that we have collectively a responsibility for creating the situation where people felt like the convoy was speaking for them. One of the issues in Ottawa that I think is particularly relevant to the occupation is the police force. A police officer had killed a black man who was suffering from mental illness, He was agitated. And the police officer had gloves that had steel knuckles and killed the man. And during the trial, during him being suspended, some of the other officers on the force had sold bracelets supporting the police officer who had beaten a man to death. So there was a pre-existing problem in the Ottawa police force, like a pretty severe split, and they had brought in a black chief to hopefully try to reform this. So before the convoy, there was this real issue within the police force. And there are some groups who are doing really good work around accountability, around shifting the focus of funding from policing to preventative issues. So that existing situation created a lot of distrust, I think, in the community about whether or not, like, we didn't know, was there a mutiny happening within the city police? Because the leadership at City Council were telling us that they were doing one thing, and journalists on the ground were showing us that that was not happening. For example, they were saying that they weren't allowing refueling to happen of the trucks. But then there were police officers there allowing jerry cans to go in. So it was clear that there was a disconnect between what leadership was saying and what was happening on the ground, but we didn't know why. And then there were others who were using this moment to say, oh, well, this just shows that we need more resources for policing that's also quite troubling. And so that existing situation at city Council and within the police force, I think created a lot of distrust in the community and a severe lack of faith. And what we had seen was that racialized people who had been organizing and trying to raise that there are these issues that exist within Ottawa City Police, were kind of like, yeah, we told you so. This is what we've been saying. Can you see what we're saying now that the police aren't there to protect us they agree with the convoy, they're on their side, they're sympathetic, they're not here to protect us. And so that dynamic, I think a lot of maybe more comfortable folks who never considered themselves activists were put in a situation where they maybe had a glimpse into what it might feel like to be on that side where the police
1: aren't there to protect you and what
2: that might feel like for racialized people or LGBTQ communities and that kind of thing.
1: And this was even like one of the worst failings of the mayor, Mayor Watson, like how let down people felt by the mayor's office, by Jim Watson specifically, and how he really failed the community. Because even in the mayor's office, it's like they forgot that people live downtown. Because the guidelines coming out of City Hall were just telling people, avoid the downtown core, don't come downtown this weekend. And it's like, dude, like people live here. And then also taking it further past downtown, like... When the convoy set up an encampment at Coventry, people live there too, mostly low-income folks. And the convoy set up this military-style encampment, which was facilitated by the city. They have this military-style encampment outside of low-income residential neighborhoods, which is a lot of migrant folks, a lot of racialized folks who feel directly targeted by the convoy. How is that excusable? How is that defendable?
0: And how did this moment of crisis turn into the founding of Community Solidarity Ottawa?
1: There's always been, I think, a strong community activism presence in Ottawa. I think of groups like Ottawa Acorn, who have been doing so much amazing work here in the city, advocating for housing rights and disability rights, tenant rights. Groups like Justice for Workers, formerly known as 515, who really set an example for us to follow But when the convoy occupation came to town, I think it made a lot of us, definitely myself, realize that we were missing the sort of grassroots coalition that we needed to stand up against that sort of an occupation, to stand up against fascism, to stand up against far-right extremism, taking space in our city and harassing residents in our city. So we quickly formed that coalition just from pure strength of will. The first march we did on February 12th, we brought that together in a span of, what, 72 hours? But it was just people really wanting to come together to do something, to organize something in a productive way, in a safe way, in a way that we were keeping participants safe, in the way that we were making it clear to our community that we were standing up for them, that we were showing solidarity for the community and for frontline workers. And to really make sure that we were amplifying a positive message and real solutions to the pandemic, like paid sick days, minimum wage, strengthening public services, and ending the housing crisis, ending the crisis in long-term care. And really making sure that message was at the forefront to counter the divisive message and the hateful message that was present in the convoy. And I think that's changed our city. And an example of that would be the day after the first Community Solidarity March. We had a spontaneous blockade at the corner of Riverside and Bank, which is now known as the Battle of Billings Bridge. And that sprung up just from residents, community members organizing it in a neighborhood dog walking group chat to just stand up as citizen activists and say, no, we're not letting more convoy trucks come into our city. So that's been inspiring to see folks who didn't necessarily see themselves as activists now beginning to see themselves as activists and to take on that sort of power that they have in their voice and in their ability to take action.
2: So as far as I understand it, people who knew each other were having conversations. There was a protest planned for City Hall, and there were a bunch of people who had very real concerns about safety because it was very close to where some of the truckers were happening. So there were all of these different conversations happening from people who have done this work before in different areas. What can we do? We have to do something. How can we be safe? And so people just started emailing each other and saying, OK, we have to get all of these conversations in one place. It kind of spread through word of mouth networks. Alex hosted a couple of these broader meetings and We agreed that we thought it would be good to have some kind of march and that with people in the labor movement who have expertise, you know, we do picket lines all the time. We would have a fair amount of experience and people who would be able to provide some safety for a march. At one of those meetings, I signed up to be on a steering committee. Alex and Chelsea were invaluable. They just put everything that they had into it, a bunch of other community and labor folks. We just, yeah, it took, I think it was 72 hours. And we had you know, lawyers stepping up to brief people on what your rights were, what to do if you were arrested, how to conduct yourself in the safest manner. Because the messaging coming out of City Hall and out of the police to counter protesters was stay away. So we felt like the police might be more hostile to us than they, uh, well, far more hostile to us than they had been to the convoy. Because they saw us as more of a threat somehow. And then how do we get the message out to all of our networks? What can we do? Like, What speakers can we have that would be appropriate? There was huge discussions around what route is safe? Where could we be physically? And then after we had that march, there was this sense of collective relief. It really was for so many people that participated in that. They took a deep breath and let go of some of their anxiety. And they're like, okay, we can build because we really saw this as the far right laundering people's concerns in a way that was resonating with so many people that we knew. And we felt we really had a responsibility to fight back against that as well as to keep our community safe. And so we continued to meet. We're still meeting and we're still talking about how we can organize it's a long-term project here and more people are stepping up and bringing their energy in so it's been really fantastic to be a part of it
1: yeah definitely it's been inspiring to see people come together and then step up in so many different ways It would really be like impossible to even try to list off the key players, the key organizers in this, because so many people have stepped up in so many different ways to help organize this, whether it's marshalling, whether it's comp support, whether it's logistics support, whether it's, you know, legal and safety support. The way I've described it is it's been, to me, the most shining example of just like community heroism that I've ever seen, just people stepping up. And as Angela was just saying, now we're looking at building long-term, right? Because so much of this came together as a reaction to the convoy. And we organized the first march and then the events that followed as a reaction to the convoy and as a reaction to wanting to create spaces for the community to come together and heal and provide an opportunity to stand together in solidarity with one another. But now, as we look at long-term, what this can continue to grow into, I think that's really encouraging and really motivating that we build this capacity of what can it turn into And I've already seen certain examples have been like on March 15th, there was an event organized for the International Day Against Police Brutality. We were able to distribute the call out for marshals to our existing list of marshals and folks stepped up and helped out with that event. On March 20th, there was a status for all rally organized by Migrant Rights Network for the International Day for the Elimination of Racism. And again, so many organizers from Community Solidarity Ottawa and marshals from Community Solidarity Ottawa stepped up and ended up being on the ground for that event. The Battle of Billings Bridge, a blockade that happened, a lot of people who ended up on the ground and taking leadership roles either to organize the crowd on the fly or to just step in, like naturally step into marshalling duties, were marshals that we had trained and that we had organized for the march that was the day before. So I think, you know, we need to keep organizing and keep building on that capacity. I'm really excited to do that. I'm really excited for the future of CSO, of Community Solidarity Ottawa, and of the organizing that will continue to happen here in Ottawa.
2: The thing that I love about the work at Community Solidarity Ottawa is it combines the care and the warmth, and the mutual aid that I felt working in the peace movement, along with the strength of what we have in the labor movement the standing up for others, having people being willing to step forward and kind of stand between others and de-escalate and putting forward the perspective of working class issues in this whole context. So I really love the potential that we have here to do this work in a very meaningful way.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Angela McEwen and Alex Silas of Community Solidarity Ottawa. To learn more about the group, go to communitysolidarityottawa.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.